Where are you, Steve? You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. I'm very excited to have my guest on the show today because when her group's first album came out, it was my senior year in high school, and we were watching them on MTV, and then they kept getting bigger, and then it was, I graduated high school, and then it was the summertime, and the, the Go-Go's were being played in all the South Jersey bars, the Philly bars, and then I went to college, and when I went to college, everyone had the damn Go-Go albums, and when we go to places and we got the beat came on, the whole dance floor would get packed. And everyone, because they were so big, everyone had their favorite go-go. Some, some was for Linda, some was Charlotte, some was Jane, some was Kathy. But mine was my guest today. I think it was because when she sat behind that drum kit, she just oozed cool. She just kicked ass. And we didn't see a lot of female drummers back then. It was the 80s. You didn't see much. And my guest, who had a book just came out, just got nominated, just actually got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My guest is Gina Shock. How you doing, Gina? I'm really good, Steve, and thank you for that fabulous introduction. Um, uh, you know, the thing that I love about the Go-Go's is that exactly what you just said, everybody in the band has their own, like, little fan club. Everybody gravitated to different members of the band, and that's what is so cool about the Go-Go's, you know? It's not just one person. It's all five of us that people find, different folks find interesting, you know what I mean? Um, that's a good band. Yeah, well, what's great also was, because, you know, I'm from the MTV generation, we sure. saw you, and we saw, and your videos were fun, and, you know, back then, I mean, I started seeing when MTV first came out, but your videos, it did, it gave you all a different identity, but it just made you look all fun, and I think that's one of the reasons why the band blew up so much, besides being great musicians, but it's just that it was relatable, you know, you could sit there and go to a party, and you know if we got the beat came on, or our lips are sealed, people were dancing. And, you know, back then, if we're shy, we're in college, we're like, oh, you know, you're afraid to ask a girl to dance. But when people are already in a dance floor dancing, you could do that old 80s move where you sort of creep in and start dancing, and no one gave a crap. Well, I'm happy that it helped you pick up a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made the whole, the whole process easier, huh? Because oh, they was... were already out there dancing, and you could say, man, it's girls playing this. Wow, how cool. Then you could really start a conversation with the girl. Now, I, I got to tell you, I watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and I want to say thank you for when you gave your speech, dropping the F-bomb. That was, that, what, that was great, because that's what, to me, you know, you guys started off as a punk band. So that was like, that's what punk and rock was, you know, the, just that kind of energy. So, Steve, if you'll notice, I was paying homage to the punk era. Okay, what with my outfit that I had on. That was all 80s punk stuff that I wore, okay? In the early 80s, all my punk gear. Um, and I wanted to show our roots because we are and were a punk. We were a punk band when we started out, and we we're still a punk band at our heart. At the roots of this band, we are a punk band. Um, and as far as dropping the F word, the F bomb or whatever, uh, anybody that knows me knows I curse a lot. Uh, and it's funny because some people can get away with saying it and other people, it sounds really filthy. But when I say it, it's just such part of my vocabulary that you don't even blink an eye. It's sort of like, oh yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I like, I like to drop the F-bomb and sometimes I'll be watching something and my wife's like, do you always have to curse? And I go, and then when she curses, I go, wait a second, you never curse. I'm the one who curses in this relationship. Hey, there was a lot of people cursing on that stage. Okay. Didn't Clarence Avant say the F word? I think so. I think Clarence did. 
Yeah, because, oh man, he and I hit it off right away. Um, Nicole, his daughter, introduced us, and I had just watched that documentary that she did on Netflix. And I was like, this is so fucking cool. This man, oh wow, I hope I get a chance to meet him. And then there he was, sitting next to Nicole. And I was like, oh my God, Clarence, I I love you, and you're so fucking cool. And then later, Nicole was sitting at the table behind us, and she walked up and she said, my father loves you because you said fuck. <laughs> Now, what was it like when you what was it it like when you finally got the call to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because you you guys have been looked over for a long time, and when you think about it, you know you influenced a lot of musicians. I mean, that's the one thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, you guys influenced a whole. I mean, the people my age. You know, you turned everyone on to just the the all female band. Were you stoked when you finally got? nominated or were you just like or adopted or were you like yeah this shit's happening again they're passing up on us i was a little excited but not that much because i thought don't count on it man the odds have not been in your favor all these years when you you know when you could have been inducted and so and then i thought wouldn't it be just perfect that we get nominated and don't get inducted but then when we actually were inducted, when we got the call that we're going to be inducted from our manager, he's like, hey, girlies, guess what? And we're like, you're fucking kidding. Okay, so then I was seriously starting to get excited. But I still had a little bit of bravado about it. I was like, nah, whatever, you know, that's kind of cool, but I don't really care if we do it. Then that night, I, I was exploding with, like, gratitude and love and the whole thing. And I still feel like that. I am still high over that the whole thing that went down at me because, you know, I just hung out with who's who in the industry that I love and the people that I'm huge fans of. Um, you know, it was all a magical night. It was wonderful. Now, what was it like with Drew, Barry Moore, introducing you? Because that had me on my, the floor when she started putting the, the cold cream on. I mean, I can oh tell you gosh, guys. We were impressive. backstage in tears. We were all teared up <laughs> because it was like, oh my God, you know, <clears throat> what people said to me about Drew. So, what's this up with Drew? I was like, you know what? We couldn't be happier that Drew's inducting us because she's a real fan. She's been a fan of this band since she was a little kid. We'd walk up stage, she'd be there with her mother, stand on the side of the stage. And so, we were very happy that she was available to do this. And then, after all that went down and we hung out, you know, afterwards, and she started, like, talking to us about, like, what the band really meant to her as a kid and, you know, going through really troubled periods of her life and how we sort of helped her get through and made her know that women could accomplish anything they really put their mind to, that, it, you know, being a woman was not an obstacle, only if you let it be. And, you know, um, it was so great. We were all on the verge of tears that night because it was like it was like a homecoming, a family getting back together and it was all honest and true and it was like the gratitude and love that we have for each other and like so proud of her what she's accomplished you know because she was a kid growing up in public and you get fucked up that happens it's really hard to grow up in public and we were in our early 20s and it was like to be a little kid not easy not easy now the performance you know you've played huge venues you know you've played everywhere but when you're playing at the, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is there is there a certain feeling when you you look into the audience and it's a celebrity, or I mean, is it something where you and you're feeling 
adulation. I mean, you're going to feel that anywhere. But it's like when you go and perform in front of a, a audience, it's wonderful. But when it's in front of your peers and people that are yeah. icons, what is it like for you? I mean, what was that feeling? It's like for me, it would give me goosebumps. I'd, I'd be like, holy Guess shit. Guess what, Steve? I was terrified. I thought I was going to pass out at any any moment. Uh, when I first sat down with those drums, my head was spinning, man. And I kept thinking, like, keep it together. Don't fuck up. Keep it together. Just keep it together. Do what you always do. Come on. You've been doing this for a long time. You can do it. I was really mortified. I thought, I'm, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to fall on these drums. I'm going to just fall down. It was thrilling, exciting, and terrifying all at once. Because when I looked out there, and I knew who's in that audience, and then I looked at the at the whole place that was filled to the rafters. It was sold out. It was, what, 20,000 people? Every seat was taken. We took the stage. Every one of those, everybody in that place stood up. Everybody stood up started singing and dancing. It was like, oh my God, this is a total Go-Go's concert. That made me feel a little bit better. It wasn't until I got into Ireland to Seal that I started to really calm down and get into my groove and like kind of get over the nerves. By we got the beat, I was sailing. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, it's comfortable and it's good. Um, but, you know, to see all those people and know there are peers um, and to have them all celebrate our induction in the way that they did, it was, it was... You know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it was just blows my mind. I'm still floating on air from that whole thing. Meeting nice. all the people that I met, hanging out with Paul McCartney and Questlove and uh, Angela Bassett and uh, you name it. Um, Christ, I can't even think straight. Uh, uh, Dave Chappelle. Uh, Jesus. And, and, of course, the Foo Fighters. All the guys at Foo Fighters, we love them, you know. Um, hanging out with them all night, and, and and then Dave had a party. We all went to the party afterwards and played. It was so fun. It's it was fun. great. Pat Schmier was playing guitar. It was great. It's funny. Uh, Dave, already, uh, years ago, years ago, God, when I lived in L.A., I went to uh, Taylor, Park, Taylor Hawkins had a birthday party, and I always cracked up. We, we went, and he had a pinata that looked like him, and when it opened, it was airplane bottles of liquor. And I thought that was like, the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life, and I'm like, oh, that's what it's like to be a rock star. I love it. Taylor is so humble and such a beautiful individual. Uh, he's a real he's a real gentleman, and he's one of the badassest. Uh, he's a badass drummer. Oh my god, he puts everything into every beat, every every beat that he every time he hits one of those drums, his fucking whole being is in that is in that drumstick. That's the kind of playing I love. That's the kind of playing I grew up to when I watched John Bonham or Charlie Watts. You know hitting it with all they've got, you know, and he's like that, and so is Dave. Were they your influences, Bonham and Watts? I mean, what got you into the drums? Because also, you know, I think back, you know, when I was in band in, in, in elementary school, I played the trombone, you know, because I couldn't, I tried to trumpet, it would never make any noise. Yeah, I played that. But you didn't see, <laughs> you didn't see women playing the drums. What made you decide to play the drums? Easiest instrument for me to play. I tried bass, I tried guitar took lessons for like a month here a month there and then I thought well I'll try drums and when I sat down and put headphones on and started playing with my favorite song of the day I I didn't have to think it was very very easy for me to do it it felt very fluid very comfortable and it was like this is the instrument that I was meant to play so just go with it and I did and I've never taken a lesson for drums um and um hey how lucky is that <laughs> Well, you know, it's fine. You know, I find that a lot of successful musicians really 
haven't taken lessons, whether it's guitar or drums. A lot of them are self-taught. And I think that's just, I don't know, what do you, why do you think that is? Just because you don't worry, you don't have the inhibitions, and you just go, okay, I, I'm just going to kick ass, and no one's going to say you're playing too hard, or what do you think it is? Nah, it's just coming from the heart. It's coming from every fiber of your being. It is, you put yourself into every every move that you make on that kit or when you strum a guitar, whatever it is. It's something that you don't really have control of. It just happens. Your body does it, and you follow it. You just follow. You follow your body, your soul, what's, what's pushing you forward, you know, propelling you uh, forward. I, I, uh, you know, I, I believe anybody, I mean, you know, it's great if you can take lessons and all, cause there's nothing wrong with, you know, music theory. It's all, I think it's all important, but if you don't have something in you that makes it happen without having to read something and then translate that into your movements, whether they be guitar or drums, whatever it may be, I think you're sort of in a deficit beginning because like, I don't know. I just feel like uh, it should come from you first. And then if you have something worth following, then maybe take lessons if you want. But I don't know. I feel like, I mean, sure, I'm not putting down taking lessons to learn how to play and then taking it from there. But uh, I, I always have felt that uh, you're right about some of the best musicians. are They never took lessons. They just followed with their mind and their body was pushing on them, you know. Um, that's the way it's been for me. I I never thought about it. It just happened. Now, you have a book. I want to talk about your career because I'm a huge Go-Go's fan, but you have this book that came out. What made yeah. you decide, you know, it's made in, made in Hollywood, all access uh, with the Go-Go's. What made you decide to do a, what made you decide to do a book? And it's, it's, it's a lot of pictures and it's the, it's the kind of books that are just cool. You know, they, you, you can look at them and you can have a few cocktails with your friends and go, you're not going to be sitting there sharing a novel with your friend when you're drinking. You'd be like, oh, I love that. Up. Steve, you're like, share a cocktail with your friend. Baby, is that just an East Coast thing or what? I, you know what it is? I think it is. I, I learned when I lived in, well, I grew up. I grew up in New Jersey, where I am now. But then I lived on the West Coast for twenty five years, and I just moved back four years ago. And I, just, yeah. I don't know. I just think you know, we. I think it's when we grew up. You know, we were always like we'd be in a car because it's cold, drinking beers. You know, because we, we were <laughs> underage. And, Same here. And, and you know, because you're from you're from Baltimore, right, or from Maryland? I'm from Baltimore, yeah. Yeah, so you sure. knew, like in California, kids could just hang out outside and at a, on a blanket and drink beers. For us, you freeze your ass off. So we'd always park in a neighborhood that we didn't see and around and put the heat on. And of course, all these people would know what's going on because they see four people in a car that are all frosted and smoking pot. Usually, usually smoking a joint as well. We used to get those um, when I was in high school. We get those um, Miller Pony bottles. Remember those little ponies? Yeah, ponies. Seven ounces. <laughs> oh my God! We put a case in the trunk and we go to a drive-in. You know, see, we used to, we used to drive down to the Jersey Shore, and we would sit there and we drink on the way down. But whenever we got to the toll booth, my one friend was paranoid, like the toll booth collector was going to call the cops. He'd be like, "Hide the beers, yeah, hide yeah, the beers." I'm like, yeah. "They don't give a shit. They're making their money. You think they care? We're driving." No, look, I can tell you one thing. When I was growing up, and I got pulled over by a cop, and he saw we were all drinking, he took the beer and he said, "Now get your ass home." <laughs> <laughs> Different times. It is an you know, because we weren't shit faced drunk, but we were drinking, and he knew it, and he saw the beer because I was like, "We're busted, guys. This is I'm in high school, and um, so we're underage. We're drinking. We're in a car." But I was, I was honestly within a mile of my home, so he just took the beer and said, "Get, get your ass home." Exactly. That's the way it was when I grew up. <laughs> so let's talk about the book. What made you decide? So the book, the book, the book. The yes. book is great because it's just it's cool. But what made you decide? 
to do a book and and why did you do it in the format that you did because i have been wanting to put together a book of my photographs for decades and the band has been a hundred percent behind me doing it and it was very very difficult to even to think about doing it without i needed somebody's help there's no way i could go through these thousands of photographs that I have in my possession, every tour book from every tour that I have, every button, every poster, every t-shirt. I mean, these are all important things in my life through, you know, over this 40 year period. And I just had to keep them. I'm not a hoarder. I got everything in its place. I'm a Virgo. I'm very organized, but you know what? I'm a sentimentalist and it mean it all means something to me. I kept my daily planner since 1978, Everything, you know, I've kept it all because it's all got information and I look at it and I remember everything that was happening, just like a song, just like a photograph. Finally, I found the right fellow to help me put it together. And I flew him from L.A. We talked on the phone a couple of times, flew him up from L.A., brought him in my house, the living room, all the photos were all over the floor. And he was like, Gina, you have a treasure trove here. This is a go-go's gold mine. Let's write a proposal. Let's get you a deal. Wrote a proposal and we got a deal pretty quickly on um, and then we started looking at the photos, going through that. And I was like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to pick out. I had, I, because I had narrowed it down to 500, okay? And then when he finally came back up, he was like, Gina, you know, <laughs> this is too many. We got to, we're going to have to make it a lot less than this, probably half of that. And um, so we started looking at it and narrowing it down. And then I got a, you know, the publisher was like, what do you think about writing? What about some text? And I was, um, Initially, I, I said, I don't think I'm capable of it. I don't, I've never written a book. I don't know the first thing about it. Um, and then my partner, Steve, was like, Gina, I've written books. I can help you organize your thoughts. I can help you put it together chronologically or however we want to do this. He said, I know how to do this. So Steve and I just started working on it. And I, then it became all these words. And it was like looking at those photographs, it all started pouring out. The words started coming out. It was easier than I thought way easier i mean it took a year and a half from the first time we met to finish this book but i am super proud of this book because it's everything i wanted it to be it's the photographs i love they're all, all this stuff was in my possession every word in that book is my they're my words every word so this is like a slice of my life that i'm sharing with everyone and especially the fans i wanted the fans i did this for the fans you know i wanted them to see from the inside what it's like to be in this band now it's funny because I, every once in a while, I'll find pictures. I can't even find pictures from when I was in college. Okay, the shit gets lost when you move and stuff like that. But what you know, what made you? What gave you the instinct to take the photos back then when you were first starting out? Because a lot of times people do that and then they lose. It's it's not the same well, as now. You can use a camera and you have it. Steve, Steve, I started taking photos when I was a kid. When I go to see, when I go to rock concerts. I had an Instamatic and I was always taking pictures and I still have those photos of the first time I met Jay Giles or the first time I met Alice Cooper or the first time I met Ted Nugent. I have these photos still in my possession. They're kind of shitty, but I have them. <laughs> and for me in the audience, like, you know, however many rows back taking a picture and there's a speck on the stage. Oh, that was Steve Miller. <laughs> you know? um, I have all this stuff and I thought I, I want to be able to look at this one day and remember exactly what I was thinking and doing when I saw whomever it was I went to see. You know, the James Gang, you name it. I saw everything that came to that Baltimore Civic Center, um, including Led Zeppelin. Um, I um, 
I saved all of it. I, I, I was always interested in photography. It was nothing. It was had nothing to do with my home life because my parents weren't into it. But but I just was, and it started with going to rock concerts and wanting to save a piece of that that I could look at and go, oh wow, I was there. Oh yeah, man, I remember that show. That sort of thing, and it continued. You know, uh, the drive across country with my friend Babs from high school. We drove across country. I was snapping with my Instamatic, taking pictures across country. Um, and then getting to L.A. and I met a friend there who became a dear friend, still my friend, Rila. She was taking pictures. Well, then I saved a little money up. I went out and I bought a, a Canon 81. And then I started. And then I started. Then I bought a Polaroid and started with the Polaroid. And I was just snapping everything that was around me, my surroundings, people, places, and things, everything I was exposed to. I was snapping, okay? And it just so happens that I was in the Go-Go's. So that's what you get. My life in the Go-Go's, the rest of the band, my bandmates, and then everybody, lots of folks who came in contact over the last, over over 40 years now. Now, when you when you drove to L.A., was it your intention to drive there to be a musician? What brought you to you L.A.? I didn't drive there to be a musician. I drove there to be a fucking rock star. And when I left Baltimore, I told them all, next time you see me, I'm going to be a rock star. And crazily, <laughs> I was a rock star the next time they saw me. Because <laughs> it was a couple of years later, and the Go-Go's were happening in a major way. Um, and, you know, friends and family, they saw the rise. They saw the steps, you know. Um, and I got there in 79, February, uh, Valentine's Day of 79. And, you know, by the end of 80, 81, 81, we were happening big in 81. So it was a couple of years Later, it wasn't all that long a period of time before I first set foot, you know, in L.A. until until we were, you know, the queens of L.A. How did how did you end up in the Go Go's? Because you weren't the original drummer. What was what was it? No, no. Um, I the fellow that I was living with at the time, Steve. When I got out there, he's like, Gina, we're going to get you in a band. We got to get you in a band, man. You're such a great drummer. We're going to get you. We're going to find a great band. He said, "There's this band, the Go-Go's. I want you to come with me and go." So I went with him, and we saw them play at Club Eighty Eight, and um, they weren't all that great, but they had an impact on me that uh, I couldn't shake. It was like they were having so much fun on stage, and they were dressed crazy, and they were a punk band, which I loved. Um, and, and, um, there was something special about them. There was, you know, diamond in the rough, the old, the old cliche. Yeah. That's what that band was. You know, there were five diamonds in the rough and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I was like, okay, Steve was like, okay, Gina, we're going to get you in that band and get that kick out that drummer. So his brother, his brother, Doug had a party like within a month of that period, like within a couple of weeks at a party, he lived in Venice. And, and like, you know, at that time, all the people that were in the music scene, all the punks, we all hung out together, right? Or they all hung out together. I was just entering the scene. And so when you had a party, just about everybody in the scene would be there because it wasn't very big yet, but it was tight and it was fierce and people backed each other up. So at the party, I met, uh, I believe it was Jane, Belinda and Margot. And they came up to me and they were like, we're looking for a drummer for our band. And I was like, well, I'm looking to join a band. And um, that was it. They came over to the house later that week. And I played a couple songs with them. They, they brought a cassette tape handed to me. I played the songs. And uh, one of those songs was Beatnik Beach, which I loved. And it was like sold, done deal. That was on a Sunday, Monday. Their drummer was out. I quit the two bands I was in and 
that's the go-go's that's how it started and then started you know the whole different approach to what they were doing and that was we need to practice we need to rehearse not once or twice a month but four times a week after work we get together and we start playing because what we have is golden and if we let it slide by it's going to were screwed and I, I knew this and I pushed the girls and they followed my lead you know what they were up and they were ready for something to happen um, and you know that's how it all started what was the, the punk because there, there was a punk scene in LA what was it like when you guys first started playing the punk scene because you hear stories there was basements and different stuff what was it what was it like like and what how was the reaction because it was all females and and you know we, we sit here and think about it now and we think Oh, well, that's no big thing. But back then, that was that was a big thing. People weren't used to seeing that. Well, you know, uh, you know, it, we only hung out with each other. You know, it wasn't like uh, we were out there trying to uh, get folks to join our, our movement here. You know, uh, uh, it was it was a great time and a great scene. I felt like I said, we all supported each other. You know, you could go out. Any night of the week and see two or three shows at night. There'd be one at seven or eight, one at 10 or 11, and then there'd be another one at one o'clock in the morning. And you knew everybody, you knew all the bands. So we'd go to one show, see a band play, they'd finish, and then we'd, the pack would get bigger. We'd go to another show, the pack would get bigger. And then we'd all go like to the mask or whatever and go sit down there and drink and eye, hang out, and talk about what happened that night. It's funny you say that. I, for years in the Philadelphia area and on the road, I did stand up comedy. And it was the same thing. We would meet at the South Street Diner and you just talk all night about what happened and talk shit. And if we were if we were in different comedy clubs, we'd meet in the city. And it was great because there was that camaraderie. And it's cool that you guys yes. had that. We definitely did. And we were very, very supportive. And what's funny is I was talking to, oh, Lisa Robinson. I had a, a thing with her at Rizzoli Books last week. And she was saying to me, you know, when she would talk to Debbie Harry or anybody or the Ramones, they were like, they all hated each other. They were all fighting to get the top spot. Like, they were not friendly with each other. They were all in competition. And I thought, wow, the L.A. scene was so completely different. Completely the opposite of that. Now, how did you guys get your first record deal? Uh, that was with Miles Copeland at IRS Records. And a fellow that worked there, a fellow named John Guaneri saw us play and told Miles Copeland about it, said, you need to see this band. And then Miles came and saw us play and he, he wanted to sign us. He was like, I think he said, he didn't give a shit. He just thought it was like, you know, whether we were going to sell a lot of records. He thought just the fact that, the, that they're all girls is going to attract attention. So that's a good way to start. So, hey, Miles Copeland, that's what he came up with. He, and, you know, I mean, uh, he was managing the police. His brother's in the police. His other brother is FBI, uh, uh, a booking agency, and then Miles is IRS Records. So, um, you know, he knew what he was doing, and um, he was young and really ambitious, and uh, and we followed his lead. And, I mean, of course, he didn't give us any real money to make that record. I think we had $60,000 to make that first record. That included, like, hotel and everything, coming all of us traipsing here to New York and working on that record. But I'll tell you one thing he did that was – Well, it's funny, that album was, I mean, it was, 
you're, you're, it was just such a big album. And as I said, someone who, was, who lived the time when it came out and the videos. What was your take on videos? Because a lot of musicians are different. Some love it. Some think they suck. They're like, we just sit around. We do this. Tell me about the uh, Our Lips Are Sealed video because it just looks fun. The, 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 the dawning of the video era and MTV and VJs and uh, uh, how lucky were we to be, to be happening at that period of time because that was PR that we didn't even have to pay for. It put our band out there for everybody in America and everywhere, internationally to see this band and uh i that it absolutely helped with record sales absolutely helped make the band as big as it became mtv was a game changer for everybody for everyone in the music business and the thing i love is all the vjs were so into what they were doing they really loved music they loved being part of the scene they loved meeting all the artists it was all real and true and that's why i wanted martha quinn to write something for my book because you know she was one of the pioneers and Martha was such a sweetheart, you know. She loved what she was doing. She still does. And they were all a part of this wonderful new thing that was happening in our business called MTV and the dawning of all those those videos, which were a pain in the ass to do. But you know what? It was the right thing to do, and it, and it really helped with sales for the band. Why were they such a pain in the ass? Because you'd have to spend 12 goddamn hours working all day, at least 12 hours a day. Trying to get a video done, you know, and it sucked, man. You were so tired, and you'd have to do shots over and over, and um, you know, it was it 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 was it was always a twelve-hour day, and it was not fun. Now you start getting success. What is that like when you're when you're young? And you know, you said earlier, like Drew grew up in success, and she was very she was young. She was a kid, and you know, you were in the music business. I mean, how was it in the early days when you were? on that cusp of knowing you were about to blow up, but you were still popular, but you knew it was coming. Did you feel that the wave was going to just take you to like one of the biggest bands around? Uh, partially. Partially, I was hoping and praying for that. The other part of me, a greater percentage of my being was just focused on doing what I had to do at the, at the time. We were so busy, Steve. We didn't have a, any time to think about what was really happening. We were busy doing, you know? Uh, and it's all we knew. We just, we did what we were told to do. It wasn't until years later that we realized, you know, we can say no occasionally. Like, yeah, we need a week or two off here and there. But uh, we were busy doing it. We didn't have a lot of time to think about it. Now, what's it like when you have a number? What, what was it like when you found out your album is number one? I know you were on the tour with the police when it became number one. First of all, that must have been amazing when, you know, I, if, tell the story if people don't know what happened. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, we're on tour with the police and we're getting ready to go when the door bursts open and there comes Sting and Stuart and Andy flowers and champagne, your records number one. And we were, we kind of knew it, but we acted like we didn't. And they were so lovely. Uh, we're on tour with them and our records outselling their record. And they were so gracious and such gentlemen to come in and, um, congratulate us. And it was a big moment for us because we were such huge fans of the police. I'd watch them play every night. I'd watch them play and I could hardly take my eyes off of Stewart. What, what an incredible, another incredible drummer, my God, with a style unlike anybody I'd ever seen, but that's growing up in Lebanon. You know what I mean? Uh, he got all these beats and rhythms from where he grew up, your environment, you are what your environment is. I think. Now the iconic cover beauty of beat as drew, portrayed it where did that come from was that was that your guy's idea or was that oh, from a photographer who thought of that i don't know who 
fun. And probably our manager, Ginger, she was a graphic artist to begin with. She had a great eye. She had great taste. And I think it was part of like, how do we make this cover timeless? We don't want to do something that's going to make us look dated. Well, there's no clothes involved. There's just towels and cold cream. So makeup doesn't give it away. Clothes don't give it away. It's just like this really cool setup that, uh, you know, certainly as, um, you know, as women, you'd think that we'd take advantage of that, you know, and try to be sexy. And well, we never gave a shit about that. We were just about having fun and, you know, doing what we thought was going to be a good time and make people laugh. We're still that way. And I'm not sure who came up with that idea. I think it was Ginger or Belinda, maybe. I don't know. But it was a great idea. Well, it's funny because you had, you know, as I said, back to videos, like the vacation video. It's classic when you guys are water skiing. It's one of those things that everybody remembers that video. And as us watching it, we thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, <laughs> when you look back, you, you know, sit there and I know videos were so expensive to make back then. They and were, and yes. people forget. They don't know that a lot of times that comes out of the band's pocket. And it, did that sort of piss you off when you sat there and went, well, we're selling albums anyway. Why do we have to spend all this money for a video when it's going to sell? Well, it was like, why did the goddamn record companies have to recoup that? Why couldn't they give us a break somewhere? They're taking our money anyway to begin with. Who's really getting rich here, let's be honest? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and nine out of ten times you're getting ripped off on your first record. And you're probably getting ripped off a lot of the way, you know. Um, yeah, we've had to have lawyers go in on Miles, go after Miles to get our first paycheck. But he paid. But it, we almost had to go to court to get him to pay us. We know we we knew, we knew that he owed us a million dollars. And, uh, you know, we had the lawyers. They were going at it. And then Miles showed up at a show. And, you know, he handed us a check and said, the go-go's $1 million. And we're like, yes. <laughs> Finally, you jerk. You finally want to pay us, even after we had to pay for a fucking lawyer to get you, to get us to pay us the money you owe us? Come on. And then he gives you a check that you can't even really deposit unless all five of you are on the account. It's like, yeah, give yeah. us. <laughs> it was all for show. He was big with that. He loved the big show, man. It's like the same thing. Where do we sign our, where do we sign our, um, when and where do we sign our deal, record deal at like some place called Kelbo's or something on New Year's Day, on, you know, April 1st. <laughs> I want to talk to you. You also you had a uh, a heart issue, which I, I recently went through some heart issues. I I had an irregular heartbeat. And I was in the hospital for eight days, and it was the awful. It was awful. But yours was at a very young age. Did you always know that there was something wrong? Yeah. How how did that happen? Because mine came out of nowhere, and I I know for you it must have been crazy because you were young and you guys were huge at that time. Uh, well, what happened was when we went on long tours like we used to, you know, we'd be out all year long, you had to have a physical. And we were all wanting to get a physical, and mine came back where my doctor called me and said, Gina, you have a heart murmur, but a lot of people have heart murmurs. It doesn't mean a thing. But come on in because I'm going to do another little test. And so they had this monitor strapped to my chest, and we're at rehearsal, and, um, and I get a call saying, you know, because you have to send in every week tape or whatever you'd send it to them. You need to come in. We need to talk to you. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm in the middle of rehearsal. I can't come in. Just tell me, no, you got to come in. No. And I started like to shake because I knew something was wrong. And I went in and told the girls, everybody dropped everything. The room got very, very quiet. We all got in the car and went over to Cedars. And um, uh, the nurse escorted me into my doctor's office and he, he pushed up 
plastic model of a heart in front of me and I just started like flipping out, shaking and like almost pass out. But, but bring in a syringe of whatever. And they, he, the nurse came in and shot me with something that calmed me down, but I was out of control because uh, he said, you see here, you got a hole in your heart basically. Atrial septal defect, I, hole in your heart. And it was congenital. And it should have been discovered many years later. Uh, I mean, many years earlier, sorry, many years earlier it should have been discovered. But I was in really good cardiovascular state because I uh, shape because I played drums for so many years. But anyway, um, the girls were brought in and he told them everybody like fell apart, screaming and crying. And then we just were like, OK, I made a decision. I'm going to have this surgery right away as soon as I can, because just the thought of it uh, was making me ill. You know, it was, it was, it was crushing me. Uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't live with the thought of it. So they said, okay, we'll get you in, in a week. I had a cardiac catheterization that I had one week after that to prepare for the surgery. My parents came out, my brother came out. And before they got here, when they were on their way, we decided to go and have one big last blast in Palm Springs, which is in the book, uh, photos. And there's a lot of text in there about that, that, uh, party that we had because we thought, you know, this shows you how screwed up we were. Um, uh, you know, it's like, let's just take a bunch of drugs and we're going to go to Palm Springs to one of our favorite um, places and one of our favorite spas. We're going to live it up and we're going to do a lot of drugs and have a lot of fun and be this gang of friends that we are. Uh, and that's sort of what happened. We, you know, they brought a bunch of drugs. We, we got a, a Jag and a Caddy drove out there. I was only allowed to take Valium and um, Mushrooms. They did the coke and uh, whatever else, and we had a blast that weekend. And I took a bunch of photographs, um, and uh, came back and went in surgery. What was the drug scene like back there? Because I'm someone from the '80s. I know it was it was you know it was decadent. It was decadent. But, for, but for you as a rock star, what's it? Explain like what like when you did you perform fucked up or did you always wait till you got done and then partied? Because I know a lot of people never, who, who never, never when I, when I performed, up. I never drank before after yeah. I would party. But what was your you what was your it. course? I'm playing drums, Steve. I can't get fucked up. I can't make a mistake. I can't have my time to be not strong and, and straight on and right on and perfect. It's got to be good. It's got to be perfect. I'm the foundation. I can't fuck up. So no, I never did drugs before I went on. It was afterwards, you know? Um, uh, and, okay, the 80s, the decade of excess, it really was. But I think, like, we were just like every other band that was out there at the time. Um, and we were kids, and we were dumb, and we normalized the amount of drugs that we were taking. You know, it was just like, that was normal. Everybody does this. What's the big deal? Coke was plentiful. Everybody was doing it. You go on a radio station, you'd sit down and do an interview, there'd be a man of Coke sitting in front of you. Everybody was doing it. Everybody. Um, you know, radio people, uh, people from magazines, people at our label. Every it was just everywhere, and um, I think everybody normalized it back then. It was no big deal, and it's funny, you know. In retrospect, you look back and think, Jesus Christ, we were cracked. Now I know everybody can, you know, young kids nowadays do what they do. What concerns me is the amount of heroin that's going around um, and the fentanyl because you just die. You die. Uh, you know, I fear for young artists these days because, uh, uh, you know, even if you did heroin back then, the fentanyl situation wasn't out and about. And uh, 
whatever. I don't know. I don't want to get into the whole situation talk about drugs. But yes, it was a part of what we did. I'm glad I did everything I did. I'm here to tell the tale and, you know, thank God. That's all I can say. And the same thing for the whole band. Now, now, why did you guys disband? What was the reason? Um, the reason was that um, that was sort of the height of the drug intake. The height where everybody had plenty of money. Everybody had their whole little plan that was telling them how great they were. And you don't need each other. Um, our management was sort of picking sides and saying, oh, we're going to go with Belinda. She's the voice. I mean, if they were smart, our management should have said, hey, guys, things are getting a little crooked here. Let's take off for a year or two. Come back in a couple of years and regroup. Let's, let's just go away. Everybody do their solo records. Everybody do what you want, but then let's get back. No, uh-uh. They just let it take off. I got to turn the light on. It's getting dark. But, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, how stupid was that? How stupid? And that was, you know, I blame that on the people that were around us. They should have known better. They should have protected us. You know, they should have been thinking about what was really important. You want to make a quick buck? Well, they made a quick buck, you know. But it didn't sustain. I don't know, man. You know, they should have been thinking about this band. Now, when you disband, now it's it's just you. You guys have broken up. What what is your? I know you had a, came out with a solo album, but what is it like when you you're on the top? You're on the top of the world, and now and you're young. You have your whole life in front of you, and all of a sudden, your whole identity seems. You know that was your identity. You play with them. You guys came from you know playing dives to being superstars. What? Yep. What was it? What was going through your mind? What were your goals at that time? Did you have goals? Or you just said, "I'm just going to chill out for a while." You know, I, I've had this no, hard operation no, thing. No. What did you do? Well, what it was like when the band broke up for that period of time was sort of separated. Um, I knew that I couldn't be a studio drummer. That wasn't wasn't my calling. Um, so I, I, uh, I always have loved being in a band. I like bouncing ideas off of people. I don't want to be a solo artist. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to put a band together. So I did. I found a partner, Vance DeGeneres, who happens to be Ellen's brother. And um, we put a band together, House of Shock. Vance and I hit it off. We started writing, and it was a good chemistry. Uh, Miles Copeland then started managing us. He liked what he heard. We started rehearsing at his home. We did one show at the Whiskey and got a record deal at Capitol Records. Um, and I was, I was pretty high about that at the time because I, I was so angry with Belinda and, uh, Charlotte and how they, how they, how they came at Kathy and myself and said, we're breaking up the band and all that. It was like, that was so fucked up and it was really, but, uh, you know, um, uh, we all did what we had to do and it worked out the way it was supposed to because, you know, I did that record. I worked with Richard Goddard again and that first single, um, Middle of Nowhere was a really good song. Um, um, I actually, uh, the reason I can say I know that is because Billy Steinberg, who was a great writer, a great legendary writer, called me during that period of time. And he get a phone call. Hey, it's Billy Steinberg. And I'm like, Billy, what's up? You know, he's like, Gina, I got to tell you something. He said he lived between L.A. and Palm Springs. He's like, I was on my way to Palm Springs the other day. And a song came on the radio, and it was so good that I pulled my car over because I wanted to hear the whole thing. I wanted to really pay attention. He said, and at the end of it, the, the DJ said, that's Gina Shock from the Go-Go's, her new album. House, this is her new band, House of Shock, the, the new single, Middle of Nowhere. He said, Gina, you wrote a great song. That song is really good. And I was like, yes. Billy Steinberg says so. I believe it. So I felt pretty good about it. Unfortunately, 
um, after my record was out, and it wasn't that long, we started to do like a little bit of a West Coast tour, whatever. Get get a call from uh, Tom Wiley, who signed me to Capitol, and said, Gina, we're all going to be fired within a month. We're all getting fired. I'm like, fuck, okay. This is not what I want to hear. But that's what was happening. Everybody got fired. He said, I'm going to give you a chance now to get out of your deal before the, I get fired. Do you want out or do you want to stay at Capitol? And of course I said, no, let me out. I don't want to be a goddamn tax write-off for this label. I don't want to be here with a whole new group. You muted yourself. Sorry. I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to be there when you get a whole new group of people coming in and they want to sign the newest thing. They don't give a shit about bands that are already signed. They want to find some new, some new, uh, uh, st- you know, some new acts and so that they can be the next superstar at their label. I wanted out. And um, Tom let me off my, let me off my uh, deal. And at that point I was fed up. I was just fed up, you know. And so I came to New York for a while and I just thought I'm going to be a songwriter. So uh, I got a I got a, a new manager here, and then I got a um, I got a deal at MCA, a publishing deal, and just started focusing on my writing. Um, and then, of course, the Go Go's got back together in 1990. We've been together ever since. We started doing shows, blah 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 blah, and the rest is history. What and is I it, continued being a songwriter in earnest, you know. What is it like when you got back together? Because I always think you know, because you there was hard feelings. I mean, how do you put that under the, the rug? Now, given we, we grow older and we mature, I mean, I'm a Scorpio. We worked it out. Steve, we worked it out. Uh, a lot of crying and hugging and apologies. And um, like I say in my book, we are a family. And uh, the old cliche, you don't always like your family, but you do love them. That's the way I feel about this band. Um Sometimes I just, I really do want to kill people in this band. And then we make up and it's like, they we're family. We've been, this relationship of over 40 years is the longest relationship that any of us have been in. You know, think about that for a minute. And, uh, you know, uh, this whole journey has been mind-blowing. It's everything I've ever wanted. It's my dream come true. And I've lived this as an adult, you know. My whole adult life I've been doing this. And I just... I can't get over it that I'm still so lucky as to be doing this. Well, it's just wonderful. One thing that actually, how important do you think to, you know, everyone, the 80s are back. People are loving the 80s. And then your documentary came out. How important was that into getting new fans? Because some people aren't familiar with the Go-Go's. Was, did, that, did you see a spike when that documentary oh, came out? Oh, you know it. That, um, the documentary, I think, changed everything for the band at this point in time, or a couple years, two years ago when it came out, because... Um, first of all, it won a Critics' Choice Award, so it was out and about. People knew about it. People were watching it, and I think that that is uh, one of the main reasons that we came to the attention of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I think it's a big reason as to why we were inducted. I think there was after people started seeing this, and, we, and the Go-Go's were brought back to the attention of a lot of folks and our peers and our fans, new fans, this and that. There was way more pressure on them to like, hey man, what's up? Why aren't the Go-Go's inducted, you know? And I think they felt the pressure, and then it happened. Now, with your new book, real if you can just tell me, what are some of the pictures that didn't make it that you really wanted to make? And will we possibly see a second book? See, there are a ton of pictures that didn't make it. And, yes, I could do a second book, and I will give that some serious thought. 
course, I have to get an offer first. But you know what? I it would have to be whatever. You know, it has to be the right the right time and the right amount of money that I have to get offered. All that sort of stuff has to come into play because I'm quite busy right now. But and I will be all next year. Um, I certainly have enough photos. I certainly have enough stories. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, the photos that didn't get in there, I can tell you right off the bat, you know, because people mention, oh, you're in there with Robert Palmer or you're with Joan Jett or whomever you're in the, there, that's like a teeny amount of photos that I have of us with other celebrities, actors and other musicians of our stature or, you know, small amount is in the book. I, you know, I didn't know, I had the hardest time trying to pick out who to put in this book. So I had people help me, you know. What do you think people are going to want to see? I have tons of photos, a lot more. What are what? Who are who are some of the people that you're most proud of or blown away that you got to meet? Like, who was someone that you went, "Holy shit, I'm meeting this person." David Bowie, The Rolling Stones, Pete Townsend. Um, I've met so many people. I don't know, man. Uh, Oh Christ. I love Dolly Parton. She's such an angel. Oh, I love that girl. Uh, uh, well, Paul McCartney. Um, we met Lionel Richie at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was lovely. He likes he likes our band. He knew our songs and all. It was crazy. Everybody, oh, a nice, everybody nice likes summer. your everybody likes your band. Come on, Gina. Now, now you also you co wrote a song with Miley Cyrus, right? Yeah, I got a song with the well, not with Miley. It was a there was a couple guys I was writing with at the time, and the opportunity came up to work. Well, I I went to these two fellows and I said, "Look, the Go Go's are working on this project." At the time, Disney was putting together a band. Uh, we were all a part of trying to put together the new Go Go's, uh, a, a a version of the Go Go's, young girls that we wanted to fashion into the Go Go's, and um, um, so they wanted. Five. They were going to re-record five of our old hits and then five new songs, and we all we all wrote a bunch of songs and handed them in. Well, I had written a bunch of songs with these other two writers, and when we handed in the songs, things weren't working out right between the label, the girls, between us. They dropped the whole the whole thing went right out the window, and um, they apparently really liked a lot of my songs. They liked all my songs. And I get a call from the head of A&R at Disney saying, um, hey, there's a song of yours called Breakout. Uh, we think it's a hit. We'd like Miley Cyrus to record it. Well, she was almost done that record. That record was, was finished, pretty much. And I said, well, then, at the time, Katy Perry was being managed by our management direct, Brad, Brad, um, Bradford Cobb. And he managed us and he managed... Katie. And he was like, Gina, please let me have this for Katie. This is a hit song. Let Katie do it. So I went in and Katie let her do a demo of it. And um, ultimately, Miley uh, came through with the big money and uh, said, you know, they paid us for the song ahead of time and all that. So I, uh, whatever, I just, we gave it to Miley. And it became the title track in the name of her album, Breakout. And then, of course, Disney came back to us and said, hey, we got this young artist. Her name's Selena Gomez. Can you write some stuff? So we wrote four songs. All four of them got on the record. One was the title track and one was the first single. So it was um, 
it was a fruitful uh, partnership with Disney, and then he got fired. So <laughs> why does that always happen to me? I get something really good going, and then whoever worked with gets fired, and then I'm screwed. <laughs> uh, one just real quick before we get get off. Um, yeah, you said that you're you're very busy for the n- next year and a half. What's going on in your career? What's going on with the Go Go's? Is there any new well, music or anything? What's okay, going on? So, okay, so the rest of the year is uh, I'm going to be promoting my book. I'm also going to be starting rehearsals the first of December because we've got shows to do at the end of the year. Go Go shows, um, at, which go up until January third. And we're also working on a project with someone, and I can't talk about who this person is or their company, but they're they're quality and they're they're badass. Um, they are monsters at what they do, very successful. And um, we've been working with them over the last year to put something together. Um, and I hope it's going to come to fruition next year. I'm pretty sure that it is, and it will involve music. So there'll be some new songs from the Go Go's. Um, and, um, I also have also, I have a couple opportunities that have come my way. Um, and I'm going to, to continue negotiating with both of these different companies and see where I go. Uh, but I, you know, I'm going to keep, keep working my book as far as much as I can doing the go-go stuff. And we're touring with Billy Idol next year over in England. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to be busy. Things are going to be happening. And I, you know, I have a couple things lined up on a personal level that if, if either one of them happen, I'll be, ex- I'll be exceedingly happy. And I'm pretty sure this go-go's thing is going to come through and that's going to be fantastic as well. Now, how, how fun are the book signings for you? You've been doing book signings. How fun are they? I like it. I like it. It's a lot of hard work talking. I come home and I'm hoarse. I can't hardly barely, barely talk. My voice is hoarse, you know, it's getting hoarse right now. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, um, believe it or not, I don't like to talk that much. But I am getting my fill, and I I have so much to tell. Somebody asked me, I'm going to tell them my experience, you know? Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. I'm a, a, a fan of the band. I'm a fan of you. And uh, the website is uh, gogos.com. But people, go into Amazon. And, you know, I found out if you go into Amazon and if you get the book on Audible, they actually give you a PDF of all the pictures, which is which is very cool. I don't know if you knew that. It's, it's very cool. No. That if you, Can you believe I do an audio book, Steve? Like the guy that I was doing the audio book with, he said, keep making mistakes. I just love to hear you talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, people, go to Amazon. The book's called Made in Hollywood, All Access with the Go-Go's. Go watch the Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame induction. They kicked ass. She drops the F-bomb, which made it awesome. And so, go. Watch check- the documentary, too, Steve. Yeah, the-, the fucking documentary's awesome. And you know what? I feel like you know when people have a good look at this book they're gonna they're gonna really know they're gonna really know this band you know um and oh also i have a i have a website i don't know it's the real gina shock or something like that i don't even know what the hell it is but i have an instagram account a facebook and a twitter and all that stuff so people go follow her just google gina shock and just type twitter yeah so people check her out because i'm posting stuff every day steve i'm posting all my pictures and the other day i'm walking down the street and I'm with a friend of mine, and she goes, oh, there goes Jody Foster. I was like, what? And I screamed, Jody! She's on the other side of the street. She came running over. We're both in New York City at the same time. We've been trying to get together, but I was, we both, she's here working on something, whatever. I'm here doing this. And and we hugged and kissed, and it was so good to see her. And we're going to hook up when I get back to, when I get back to L.A. But can you imagine? Here we are, back and forth, trying to get together all week. And, and um, I went to go get some foundation, some makeup. And um, we walked right by each other. <laughs> yeah. 
So Chris people, Knight. go get the book. You'll see pictures of her stories. Go to Gina's website, Twitter, Instagram. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 885 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.